Welcome to the Rolling Hills Community Church Sermon Podcast. This summer, we're walking through the book of Romans, taking a master class from the rich and powerful book of the New Testament. Romans is one of the greatest books of the Bible. It is the essence of the gospel and provides the rich doctrine of our faith. Romans was written by the Apostle Paul to the church in Rome, and God has used it to change the hearts of men and ultimately the world. In Romans, we see the impact of our sin, which reveals our deep need for God, and then the importance of living out our faith in Jesus today. Whether a lifelong student of the Bible to a first-time believer, this is a masterclass for everyone. Let's listen in. All right, Romans chapter 9. If you have your Bibles or if you're going to use a device of some sort, uh, you want to follow along uh, with the passage. Uh, Most, if not all, the passage will be on the screen uh, as we work through it. Um, And uh, so you can follow along there as well. Again, I want to say welcome. Uh, Some of you weren't here during the welcome. I didn't drop all of my, uh, I didn't drop any of my real um, dad's, uh, dad jokes during that time. Uh, So I'm I'm holding on to the right moment for the dad joke interjection here. So I'm I'm not sure. Uh, My daughter is in the back and she's a little embarrassed by some that I tried earlier. So um, I guess I'm doing a good job is really what that means. So uh, we are in a series called Masterclass. We're working through the book of Romans. This morning we get to Romans 9 and it's a doozy. Uh, it's, this, is one of those, this is one of those chapters, really 11, 9, 10, and 11, kind of what God's done, what God's doing, and what God's going to do with the Israelites. And in this, in this conversation that Paul, this letter that Paul's writing, it's a, it's a pretty heady topic. Uh, and, and one of the blessings that, that exist in, in working through a whole book of the Bible that we normally do, it's not all the only thing that we do, but normally we work through kind of a large section of Scripture or a whole book, uh, is, is that you don't get to kind of bypass things that are, that are there, right? It, it kind of forces you sometimes to, to actually to say the things or address things that maybe otherwise you would shy away from. And, and uh, I don't know if any of you have ever done the whole um, shy away from a conversation right? Maybe with a, with a friend, a family member, a spouse, maybe you're just kind of, I don't really want to bring that up yet, right? Uh, maybe a boss or something. Uh, maybe you've done the, the, um, the shy away from or hurry up, look down and walk away in the grocery store. Like if you've seen somebody from a distance, anybody ever done that? I had a friend of mine uh, tell me recently that three times in Kroger, he addressed me, he said my name and I did not respond at all. And uh, I, I really, I was not trying to avoid him. I promise, I promise I wasn't trying to avoid you. Uh, and then, uh, but I, I have done it before where I've walked in and been like, okay, I gotta go this way. Um, so that, maybe that's too much for me to admit as a pastor that I do that, uh, but you do it too. So um, uh, y'all can judge me, but I'll judge you right back. Um, but it's, you know, kind of as we've worked through these chapters and, 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 and gone through all these things, one of the things that I've, I've found out and, and kind of read and, and studied, there's, there's lots of pastors, lots of com- even commentators, guys who have written books on the book of Romans that when they get to chapter 9, they just kind of skip to chapter 12. Like they get to chapter 8 and they just kind of move on. And, and some of them have readily admitted they just don't understand what's going on. They don't want to fumble through the conversation. Some have even kind of talked about it being like a parenthesis, maybe that, that Paul kind of, it kind of diverts from when he originally wrote this, this book, this letter for. And, and I, I, I want to say that I don't believe that it's a parenthesis. I don't think this is kind of a, hey, I didn't mean to write this, but I'm going to write this in this moment. I, I believe it kind of overflows from some things as we kind of read through it. But this 
second major kind of section in this letter, verse, chapters 9 through 11, are, are really kind of, they, they say they're not, they're, they're not easy reading. They're not an easy topic. They address questions that are, that are big questions. Paul tackles the, the subject of God's sovereignty. He talks about predestination and election. And he's going to address questions about Israel and their rejection and rebellion against God and what that means. And, and, and before we jump into that, what I, what I want to do is kind of go back to the first eight chapters and just give us a little bit of a recap. Because right, Romans 1 through 8, Paul's establishing that God is righteous and holy and perfect in all of his ways. And he makes it abundantly clear that we either by, by nature and by choice are sinners, that every one of us have fallen short of the glory of God, as it tells us in, in Romans chapter 3, that we've fallen short of this glory and the perfection of God and that, that we, we don't meet that requirement, that's, that is the, the perfection that's a requirement for the relationship that, that God desires with his, with his creation. But that's not the end of the story, right? Paul continues and he addresses that, that broken relationship and how these broken people can be restored and renewed and redeemed and made righteous by God. And he explains that that's completely by grace through faith. That God in his overwhelming mercy and kindness works on our behalf in the greatest display of love that the world has ever known by sending his own son to die on a cross. And it says, while we were still sinners... While we were still rebellious, Christ came and he died on the cross in his death and burial and resurrection and, and us submitting to him as Lord of our lives that we can be renewed and, and he makes us righteous. And, and, and that's incredible enough, but he also makes us children and he gives us access to God, that he's not some distant deity, but he's a loving father who's near and close to us as his children. But that's still not the end of the story. It says that he puts his Holy Spirit in us to give us new life and a new power to live from and that the Holy Spirit is currently active in our hearts and our lives and he's, he's sanctifying us. He's making us look more. He's continuous to working in us to make us more and more like Christ, to making us, to make, making us look holy, to making us, making us holy, making us look more and more like who Christ is who Christ has declared us to be when he justified us by his blood that was shed on his cross. And, and, and as, you, as you read through this per, first part of this letter that Paul writes to, this, to, this, to the group of people, to the church that's in Rome, it's incredible. It's overwhelming. And it, it, as we just took the first part of the letter in these first eight chapters, it, there's no wonder that the book of Romans has, has been credited with so much in, in the life of the church since the very beginning. How many times it's been at the, at the, at the moment that revival kind of sparks in, in lives and in churches and in nations, Romans seems to always be there. And reading the book of Romans and studying the book of Romans Chapter 8 ends in this gradual, chapter 8 kind of gives us this gradual excitement, this kind of uh, crescendo of excitement as he kind of walks through this letter and then ends in this joy that reflects this great love as he, as he begins to talk about all of the things that God has done. And, and these, these words jump off the page in verse, in verse 38 of chapter, chapter 8. It says, for I'm convinced that neither death nor life, neither angel nor demon, neither present nor future, nor, pow nor any power, Neither height nor depth nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. I mean, you can just sense this, this incredible crescendo, this excitement that Paul writes in the very next breath 
almost as you, almost as you can hear his breath kind of taken from him. He writes these words in Romans chapter 9. And what I want to do in the remaining time is kind of look at some things about Paul and his response as he writes these first verses or first these, what happens in chapter 9. And look a little bit as, as Paul kind of reflects on what's going on and in light of all of these things that he's already written, where he's at and just this anguish that's in his heart. But then secondly, what Paul reflects is on who God is. So I want, to Paul, I want to reflect on Paul, but I also want to look at God and who God is in these passages because this is, again, this is heavy stuff. And then and the, at the, as we close, I kind of want to reflect a little bit on who we are and how we respond according to this passage. And so if you're joining me, I'm just going to pray and then we'll dive right in. Lord, I, I, we thank you for, for this morning and the songs that we sing and God for. Leo and the testimony of, of how life doesn't end and just doesn't stop for us when just on holidays that God, it, it, we have those moments, these, these things that do, we carry with us the weight of days like he carries with him. But God, we thank you that we can bring those things to you, that you're big enough to handle them. And God, we know that we can witness and share of your grace and your mercy and how you've provided for us. And God, I believe that in this passage, it is, it is a place where we can, where Paul is even reflecting on how he shares that truth with others. And we look at you and how we respond to that truth in our own lives. God, we pray that you would give us clarity as, as in, in this passage, there's so much here. It's in Christ's strong and mighty name that we pray. Amen and amen. So we, again, we kind of build up in Romans 8. It, it kind of is the ending of this, of this whole first section. He builds up to this great crescendo of God's love and nothing separates us from God's love that is in Christ Jesus. And then verse 9, what we see first of Paul is that he's full of sorrow over Israel's rejection of Christ. If you have your worship guide and you want to follow along, that's the first kind of blank that we're filling out, that Paul is full of sorrow over Israel's rejection of Christ. And it says in Romans chapter, chapter 9, verse 1, it says this, I speak the truth in Christ. This is Paul writing, I'm not lying. My conscience confirms it through the Holy Spirit. And so what he's saying, he says it three times. Listen, I'm not lying to you. I'm not lying to you. I'm not lying. This is the truth. I'm telling you, not only do I know it, but the Holy Spirit knows it. It, conf it, it, it confesses, it confirms the way I feel. So he's saying, listen to what I'm saying. Verse 2, I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my people, those of my own race, the people of Israel. Theirs is the adoption to sonship. Theirs is the divine glory, the covenant, the received, they received the law and the temple worship and the promises. Theirs are the patriarchs. And from them is, the, is traced the human ancestry of the Messiah, who is God over all. Forever praised, amen. Eugene Peterson paraphrases this path, the first part of this passage where he says this, at the same time, you need to know that I carry with me at all times this huge sorrow. It's an enormous pain within me. I'm never free of it. I'm not exaggerating. The Holy Spirit, Christ and the Holy Spirit are witnesses to it. 
And so like what, he's, what he walks through, what he's saying is at the same time as, I'm, as I just am joyful in the, the love of God that is in Christ Jesus and the fact that nothing can separate us at the same time that I carry all of this incredible excitement about all that God has done, I also carry with me this weight and this pain over the fact that the Israelites, my people, who are the people of God, the one that God specially chose out of all the nations in the world, that he specially chose them to put his name on them, that they've rejected him. Theirs is the adoption of sons. Theirs is the, they received the promises. They were the ones that got to worship in the temple, and they've missed it. And we're going to cover a little bit more about the Israelites to next week as we go through the end of chapter 9 into, verse, into chapter 10. But, but you can sense this weight that's on his heart. He's heartbroken. As incredible as all of this love that God has blessed us with, at the same time as he reflects on all of that, on God's love and mercy and kindness, it brings him this deep anguish and sorrow that the Jewish people have rejected God. To the point where he says, I, I, would, I would be cut off. I would, I, would lay aside, I, would, I would be cursed and cut off from Christ if it would mean that they could trust him and find the joy that I found in him. And before we kind of walk in and kind of think Paul may be this dramatic over, you know, kind of over, uh, over exaggerated, over exaggerates his emotions and what it's like always kind of complaining or whining or being too big in his emotions. The re, that's not the picture that we get of Paul throughout scripture. He's not kind of dramatic and over exaggerating things. Paul is physically, I, I wouldn't attempt to describe his physical makeup, but, but, but I would say that mentally the, the guy's a pretty tough fella. I mean, he's not one of those guys that you just kind of think, I, I'm, I don't look back at Paul and think Paul's, you know, <laughs> I, I'm not going to make descriptions because I'll get in trouble for that. But if you think about Paul, he, he rises to the very top of the Pharisees. I mean, he's a, he's a Hebrew of Hebrews. He's a Pharisee. I mean, he's, he's one of the top guys in, in, in the Jewish culture and in, 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 in protecting the law and proclaiming the law of God. I mean, before he meets Jesus on the road to Damascus, he's one of, those, he's one of the fellows that has gone to obtain permission from the high priest to go and persecute the church. I mean, he's not scared to go say, to go put down this movement that, that Jesus has birthed in his life, death, and resurrection. He's gone out to, to put that down, right? And we find him in Acts standing on the side holding the coats of the men that are throwing rocks and, and killing the very first martyr, first man for his faith, one of the early disciples or one of the early deacons, a man named Stephen. He's standing there. He's at the place. And he's not throwing the stones because he doesn't have to because he's, 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 he's kind of given the instructions. And Paul, is, he's, not a, he's not a weak man. And so when he kind of gives us this picture, when he, when he says, hey, I, I'm, I'm, I'm heartbroken over this. I mean, this is a man who's experienced lots of sorrow, lots of things that have, that have gone wrong for him. He, I mean, he's walked through incredible, by the time he's writing this letter to the Romans, he's been, he's been beaten and, and, and experienced hunger. He's been mocked. He's been shipwrecked. There's lots of things that Paul's gone through. So he's not just, he's not just crying like a little, a little child. This is a man who understands deeply what God has done in him. Tim Keller says this, that Paul knows, Paul, Paul knows what it is to know Christ and enjoy his righteousness. 
He knows the consequences of rejecting God's gracious offer of salvation. And so he wishes that he himself could be cursed and cut off from Christ. That if somehow that would bring his Jewish cousins to faith in the Messiah. It's staggering. It's staggering what Paul's saying. That I would give up the benefits of knowing Christ. That I've been speaking of for the past eight chapters. That I would give up all of those things if it meant my brothers and sisters, the Jewish brothers and sisters would be saved. And here we get what we get is a glimpse of Paul. We get a glimpse of a man who loves others and is, has an overriding concern for God's glory in the lives of others. And we've talked about this letter, this letter that Paul writes to the, to the Romans and how in, in this letter it is, it is an incredible kind of doctrinal statement and, and it kind of the most fleshed out theological work that Paul does. I mean, he talks a lot about theology and the others, but this is the most fleshed out that we see in all of his letters. And, and, and it's incredible. But what we understand as he writes this is that he's not writing it from some comfortable office somewhere. This is not an ivory tower. This is a man that understands and feels deeply and is not the least bit ashamed of the gospel that he's declared as he says that it is the power of God unto salvation, first to the Jews and then to the Gentiles. This, this gospel that he's proclaimed has gripped his heart and he wants to share it. He deeply, it, it matters to proclaim it no matter what the cost. He deeply wants people to understand it and lives be transformed like his life has been transformed by it. So he's in this incredible anguish. But secondly, what we see of Paul is that he is completely trusting in God's purpose and plan. He completely trusts in God's purpose and plan. Verse 6, we pick up there. It says that it's not as though God's word has failed. For not all who are descendants of Israel are Israel. Nor because they are descendants of Abraham's children. Nor because they are his descendants are they all Abraham's children. On the contrary... It's through Isaac that the offspring would be reckoned. In other words, it is not the children by physical descent who are God's children, but the children of the promise who are regarded as Abraham's offspring. For this, is, this was how the promise was stated. At the appointed time I will return and Sarah will have a son. And so he goes on from there, from, from, chapter, from verse 9, he, con, he continues to talk about Rebekah and Isaac, uh, they're, they're Abraham's son and their twin boys, Esau and Jacob. And he quotes from the Old Testament how God declares before they were born, before they had done anything right or wrong, he had chosen Jacob. He had chosen, he had chosen the, Jacob to be the one that would carry on the blessing. He would carry on the line, of Christ, the line for the people that Esau he rejected, but, but Jacob he had blessed to carry that on. And then he gives another example about how Pharaoh had, had rejected God and he used Pharaoh's rejection to do all these things. And, and so we ask the question, why is, there, why is there this history lesson? What is he trying to accomplish when he tells these things to the Jewish readers and the Gentile readers as they read this? And what he, what he wants to do is he, don't, he wants to make sure that they don't miss who God is in this whole story. That God is completely sovereign over all things. So let's pick up in verse 11. It says this, yet before the twins were even born, this is what we talked about just a second ago, before the twins were even born and had done nothing good or bad in order that God's purpose and election might stand, not by works, but by him who calls, she was told that the older will serve the younger. Just as it is written, Jacob I have loved and Esau I have hated. And that's a tough passage for all of us to understand. 
right? And I believe that in this room, there's different, different landing spots on that passage in other, in, 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 for all of us. And, and listen, what he, what he says is that I'm going to give the blessing. I'm going to put the line of, of my people are going to go through Jacob. It's not going to go through Esau. And so in, in, this, in this language, I mean, he says the same kind of language that we use in, in, in the New Testament where Jesus says that if you want to follow me, it's, it's if you've got to hate your mother and father, right? Now, we don't literally hate our mother and father. God doesn't hate, right? He, he, there is a wrath that's poured out, but that's not what we see in this path. What we see is that, he, that, that in loving him, he pours this through, that blessing goes through Esau or goes through Jacob. It doesn't go through Esau. We'll continue. It says in verse 14, what shall we say then? Is God unjust? Not at all. For, we say, for he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy and compassion on whom I will have compassion. It does not, therefore, depend on human desire or effort, but on God's mercy. In verse 22, skip down just a little bit. It says, what if God, although choosing to show his wrath and make his power known, bore with patience the objects of his wrath, preparing for destruction, prepared for destruction? What if, what if he did this to make the riches of his glory known to the objects of his mercy, whom he had prepared in advance for glory, even us? whom he has also called, not only for the Jews, but also for the Gentiles. And again, he quotes from Hosea. He says, I will care, I will call them my people who are not my people. I will call them my loved ones who are not my loved ones. And, and then in verse 26, in the very place where I said to them, you are not my people, they will be called children of the living God. And Isaiah cries out, verse 27, concern for Israel, through Though the number of Israel be like the sands of the sea, only a remnant will be saved for the, for the Lord will carry out his sentence on the earth in speed and finality. Is, not, is it just as Isaiah said previously, unless the Lord Almighty had left us descendants, we would have become like Sodom. We would have been like Gomorrah. Listen, I, I, I am aware that there is so much that you want to talk about in this passage. And, and I, I want to address it as clearly as I can, but there's certainly, there are going to be some of us here that are not satisfied on how deep we can go with this today. But there are two things that I think that we need to leave here settled on. And the first is this, that God is full of mercy rescuing both the Jews and the Gentiles. If you have your worship God, that God is full of mercy. Who, who do we understand God to be in this passage? That God is full of mercy, rescuing both the Jews and the Gentiles. And in Gentiles, what we have to understand, unless you have a Jewish heritage, that that's the rest of us. Like when God called the Jews to be his own people, he set apart them as his people. The rest of us are considered Gentiles. And so it is God's mercy and grace, period. Cert clearly and completely God's mercy that any of us have been rescued. If, if we don't get anything else in this passage, right? And if, you, if we want to argue about all the different stances and different places that theologically we land, the, the, I, I think we're missing the point. Because ultimately the point is this, that it was God's mercy from the beginning to the end. No matter where you land on the continuum of, of, of the theological differences that may stand for you reading these passages, listen, I, I, I may stand with some of you and not with others, but I, this I've got to stand on, that it's God's mercy completely. That none of us understand, none of us get to be in relationship with God, none of us get to debate this, that this has been a debate for centuries. None of us get to debate the fact that it's His mercy and His grace, 
period, that any of us know him. And secondly, that God is completely sovereign over all people and all things and all places and all times. That's where he keeps pointing back, while Paul keeps pointing back to these Old Testament figures that that we know of because we have read, many of us have read the Old Testament and maybe you don't know, but but like if you go back to the Old Testament, these names that he's giving us here, these are are stalwart, these are like big time names and like these are the people in the Old Testament. That was a great description, right? Very pastoral and, and theological in that. He wants us to know these figures and the lives that they led and the things that they did, that God was in complete control, completely sovereign over all people, all things, all places at all times. And you think about some of the things that we've talked about over this past several weeks and, and kind of leading up to this place where Rome, in Romans last week where he says, and we know, we know we have this confidence. Why do we have this confidence? Because we've seen it all over the place in the Old Testament. We have this confidence that in all things God is working to the good of those who love him. And are called according to his purpose. In this passage, he's saying, listen, in, in, in Moses' life, in Abraham's life, in Jacob's life, before the, he was in control of all of those things. Even in the rebellion of Pharaoh, he was in control of what was happening. Yes, it says that he hardened his heart, but it wasn't before Pharaoh had hardened his heart multiple times in rejection of God and his instructions before God finally gave him over to the things that he had already done. Do you remember Romans chapter 1? That he gave them over to the things that they had desired? He didn't harden Pharaoh's heart until Pharaoh had continued to harden his own heart. He gave him over to the things that he had already been doing. And in that, God was in complete control, using even Pharaoh's rebellion for his glory to accomplish his purpose. And so that leaves us with, lastly, how we respond. What do do we do? We see Paul anguished and, and, and brokenhearted over the lost, trusting in God, being the one who's in control. We see God as the one who's merciful and gracious, rescuing us and sovereign over all people and all places, all, th- all things at all times. So how do we respond? I, I don't know if some of you remember uh, back April, May of 2020, it was this little thing called COVID was happening. And uh, most of us were stuck in our houses, right? And um, I, at that time, toilet paper was a big deal. That, I don't remember if y'all remember that. That was a, a kind of a, I remember getting the call and being like, toilet paper's gonna be rushed. Like, that's stupid. And then it was, and then I was like, no, people are stupid. It wasn't that that, anyway, I shouldn't say that either. But during that time, I was the college young adults pastor and I had to be on Instagram for a fair amount of things because that was kind of the way that I was communicating with our college students and doing things with them and, you know, putting out morning devotionals and that kind of stuff. And and there was a period of time, it probably happened late April, where I was absolutely done with Instagram. And it wasn't for the things that I'm done with Instagram now. It was for things like I was tired of people like, giving me a morning devotional like I was doing for this. I didn't want to hear anybody say again uh, in this really uncertain time 
and give me that soft devotional voice and like lead me in a song. I'm like, I didn't come to Instagram for that. I came to Instagram for what the internet was built for to watch people fall and hit things. Like, I don't, wanna, I don't want you to tell me. I don't, I don't need, oh, God's peace. I'm like, I got that. I need to see people hit things and, and fall on their faces. And so anytime I just flipped up, I'd be like, uh-uh, give me some fail army or something like that. That's what I want. And, and, and you know, I, I don't really remember where I was going with this. <laughs> but you see all these people, like you see things that on Instagram. And now when I see those things, I'm like, man, a society, we as a people, we don't have much hope. Then I just wanted to see it because it was like a break from the craziness. Now I look at it and I'm like, guys, we don't have much hope if these are the people who are, who are like in charge. Right, you see people do dumb things. Now, one of the new ones is the dumb ways to die. Have you seen that, right? And I, and I think, yes, and these are people who are going to lead things in the future and we don't have great hope in this, right? And so but in that, again, I still can't process where I was going with this. But the reality, if we're, if we're left to, if humanity's left to some of these folks, we have some issues, right? And so we go to verse 19. He says, one of you will say, why then is God still, does God still blame us? For who is able to resist him? Verse 20 says, but, you, but who are you, a human being, to talk back to God? Shall what, shall what is formed say to the one who formed it, why do you make me like this? Does the potter, does not the potter have the right to make one, the same lump of clay some pottery for special purposes and some for common use. And so in, these, in this pattern, like, how do we respond? Right, and it kind of puts us in our own place in light of the craziness that you see on Instagram. Like, we probably don't need to bring indictments against the God of the universe. Right, we probably, in, in response, he said, who are you, a mere human being? The first thing that how we respond has got to be with humility and for the mercy that we have received and an understanding of who God is and what he's done, is doing, and will do. That we respond in humility for the mercy that we've received and our, underst and our understanding of who God is and what he's done, what he's doing, and what he will do. You may not understand, none of us may understand why or how, why, the, understand why God is doing these things, different things in our lives. What he is doing, what he has done, what he will do. But we can't fall into this foolish trap of bringing indictments against God in our own ignorance as if we are of superior intelligence to him. It's a foolish place for us to land. It's what Paul, Paul's kind of like, whoa. What are we to say? How are we supposed to respond? Are we supposed to bring these things? Who are we but we're mere humans talking back to God. He's over all of us. He's our authority. His ways are right and good even when we don't understand him or see how they're going to work out. And furthermore, he's not obligated. He's not obligated to explain himself. 
And we're looking, we're always looking for meaning. And sometimes we get to understand the meaning, but that's even his grace. He's not obligated to tell us. It's his grace when he reveals those things to us. He's not required to give us the details of why and what he's doing. What God is looking for is for us to, in faith, to have faith, to be trusting in him that leads us to faithful obedience to him no matter what the cost. When we bring indictments, when we bring these things to God, why are you doing this? When we bring those questions, question, when we begin to question him and we foolishly put ourselves in the place of God and bring charges against him, we're, we're saying that we know better than him, better than God the way that things should work out. And I want to tell you that that goes all the way back to the very beginning. If you go just a couple of chapters into the book of Genesis, it was there that Adam and Eve rebelled and said, God, we know better than you the way that this is supposed to work out. And we continue to do that when we say, God, we know better than why, why did you do it this way? Why, why is it that way? We bring those indictments against him. Remember what Isaiah said in Isaiah chapter 55, it says, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are my ways your ways, declares the Lord. As the high as the heavens are from the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. And so how do we respond? First, with humility, at the mercy that we've received, but also in the reality that we don't understand all that God's doing. That doesn't mean we don't seek him and ask him. He tells us to bring our concerns before him. We can certainly do that, but we don't bring indictments. Because his ways are higher than our ways and his thoughts are higher than our thoughts. And secondly, we respond by active, prayerful sorrow over anyone who's rejected Christ or anyone's rejection of Christ. If there's two things in this passage, one is that humility that, and the mercy that we've received and, and the reality that God is above us and he doesn't need to explain to us why he's doing what he's doing. But secondly, we see Paul's response that we have an active, prayerful, and I, I, I started by just saying prayerful, prayerful sorrow over, over anyone's, but I believe that it's, what we see in Paul is not just prayerful sorrow, we see an active prayerful sorrow. And we have an active prayerful sorrow over anyone's rejection of Christ. We were, as he reflects on the lostness, on the rebellion and the rejection of his people, right? Some of you have experienced that maybe, maybe your family member is a, a spouse or a kid that's rejected Christ. And, and you've spent lots of years praying. There's a lady uh, from the church that we were at in Baton Rouge uh, for years and years that I, she had been married to her husband for 50 years. And for 50 years, she she. She married him when, they, when she was young. She had trusted Christ right after they had, they had gotten married and he was not a believer. And for 50 years, she prayed for him. And every time I got to hang out with her, she would ask, Miss Kay would ask me to pray for him. And we'd pray. I'd go to the house. I'd share the gospel with him over and over. And I, I mean, I'm thinking 25 years. How, how long is too long to stop? At what point is your heart not broken and, and you're just kind of like, well, this is what I'm living with. But for 50 years, her heart was broken over her husband's lostness. And two months after I left, he trusted Christ for salvation. And a year after I left, he died. So for 51 and a half years, or 50 and a half years, she prayed for her husband. And six months later, he passed away. Heartbroken. It was an active prayerful sorrow, though. 
She didn't stop. She didn't give up. His rejection of Christ melted her heart. And she was a faithful servant, but she prayed for him. Maybe you've experienced something like that. Maybe, maybe you're just in a spot where your kids are young and you're praying for them. You're praying that they would trust Christ, but you don't know if, if and when that's going to happen because that's up to him. But you're, you're trusting in God and your prayerful sorrow and anguish. Maybe it's a parent. Maybe it's a friend that you know doesn't have a relationship with Christ. It's the active prayerful sorrow that we have over that rejection. It's active because we don't, just, we don't just say a prayer and move on, but we are continuing boldly asking God to move and stepping in where we can step in. Being winsome in our conversations. And I want to close today with this and just kind of rather than just saying, let's be active in, in, in our prayer over the sorrow that we feel over the rejection that others have. And maybe, maybe it's, uh, maybe we just need to ask ourselves, do we have a sorrow over the rejection? Maybe there's not a whole lot of sorrow and anguish the way that Paul has. Maybe that's where we start. But I'm going to ask Joel to come, and he's just going to kind of give us just some, some uh, background music for us just to kind of spend some time. And I'm just going to guide us. So if you want to just kind of bow your head, and I'm just going to ask us to pray some different things kind of guide us through a couple different things. And, and some of it's going to be praying for specific people that you know, but a lot of it's just going to be asking God to, to, to do in our hearts what we see Paul is already doing in that prayerfulness. And so just as, as, just as we begin, there's just five, four things I want to ask us to pray for. And the first one is this. I want us to ask us just for a couple seconds to pray that God would give us a heart like his, and a heart like Paul's for the lost. And in that, maybe it's a confession and repentance of, God, I don't have this kind of heart that Paul, that I see in Paul. My heart is not broken the same way your heart is broken over the lost. So it's been a couple seconds praying, God, give me a heart like yours, a heart like Paul's for the lost, for those who've rejected and rebelled against you. Second, I want you to pray this. Pray, celebrate the reality that God is good and loving and gracious and merciful and that he desires to have relationship with his creation and he is able to save. Isaiah says, surely the arm of the Lord is not too short to save, nor is his ear too dull to hear. So we celebrate, just celebrate his mercy and grace and kindness. give us a little bit longer for this one. We would pray for our lost family and friends and neighbors. And if nobody comes to mind to begin with, maybe that, that's the pause for you is just to be quiet and say, God, would you bring the people that I need to be praying for?
And lastly, I want to ask you to pray this and ask God to give us the confidence and the boldness and the winsomeness to be active and engage in sharing the gospel when he opens the doors for us to do so. Ask him to give you the confidence and the boldness and the winsomeness to be active and engage in sharing the gospel when he opens the doors for us to do so. thank you that your arm is not too short to save, nor is your ear too dull to hear. We pray that you would break our hearts the way your heart is broken. We know that your heart is broken because to a lost and dying world, to a world that had rejected you, you sent your son to rescue them While we were yet sinners, God, you came and you laid down your life. And we know that, God, your heart is broken just as Paul's heart was broken. His heart was broken because your heart was broken. We see Jesus' heart in, in, in days before he would be crucified, God. We see him, his heart broken over Israel as they rejected. God, give us a heart the way that your heart breaks over those who are lost and have rejected you. God, let us have the anguish in our souls, the sorrow that 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 set on Paul, even as Paul rejoiced in all the ways that you had loved and been so gracious and kind, that at the same time, we would carry in us this anguish and sorrow over those who've rejected you. Confident that you desire to have relationship, that we would be active and bold. We would be winsome, Father sharing the gospel when you give us opportunity to do so. An active prayerful sorrow, Lord. God, we repent for places that we have not been diligent or even recognized the loss that around us. And we thank you for your forgiveness. And we pray and hope that you will do in others what you've done in us as we pray and submit to you to be used by you. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen and amen. Thank you for listening to the Rolling Hills Sermon Podcast. Share this episode with friends and family in your life. Make sure you subscribe to be notified so you never miss a sermon. If you are interested in learning more about Rolling Hills, download our Rolling Hills app, follow us on social media, or visit our website at rollinghills.church. The Rolling Hills Sermon Podcast is a part of the Rolling Hills Podcast Network, available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and Google Podcasts. Thanks for tuning in.